So continuing on with the uh, kind of flashing out a bit of the uh, Majima 9 Samaditi Sutta uh, on right view. Um, and uh, where Sariputta gives all these different aspects of right view or ways to illustrate right view or things that are foundations for right view. And because uh, yesterday was the first one on dependent origination and uh, today's is uh, nutriment, which is a... <clears throat> the suttas that I picked out uh, come from the Nidana Sanyutta, the, the book of causation, which is mostly about dependent origination. So this is like a subset of, of uh, dependent origination. And uh, uh, the sense of <coughs> uh, nutriment, <coughs> you know, what is it that feeds and nutriment uh, the the word in Pali is ahara which is uh, is actually used <coughs> um, in Thai as the word for food so nutriment sustenance food uh, what is it that is the food for uh, our buying into the realm of birth and death buying into the realm of suffering uh, so that, uh, uh, of course, in dependent origination, the Buddha begins with with avicca, uh, but sometimes avicca can be a bit nebulous. <coughs> so then, these are ways that the uh, that the Buddha kind of got a bit more uh, granular in his uh, analysis of what is it that that keeps us. Uh, you know, keeps us volunteering for the round of birth and death and sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. <clears throat> and it's all about what we seek for nutriment, sustenance, thinking that we're somehow it's going to be healthy for us. So the, the, uh, the first discourse on Yuta 12, Sutta number 63, uh, this is one of the, the most... Uh, uh, visceral uh, kind of teachings that the Buddha gives, a uh, sense of uh, the illustrations are sort of do uh, uh, stand out, uh, and the, the name of the sutta is the sun's flesh. That's Avati. Bhikkhus, there are these four kinds of nutriment for the maintenance of beings that have already come to be, and for the assistance of those about to come to be. What for? The nutriment, edible food, gross or subtle. Second, contact. <clears throat> Third, mental volition. Fourth, consciousness. These are the four kinds of nutriment for the maintenance of beings that have already come to be and for the assistance of those about to come to be. And how, because should the nutriment, edible food be seen? Suppose a couple, husband and wife, had taken limited provisions and were traveling through a desert. They have with them their only son, dear and beloved. Then in the middle of the desert, their limited provisions would be used up and exhausted, while the rest of the desert remains to be crossed. 
the husband and wife would think, our limited provisions have been used up and exhausted, while the rest of this desert remains to be crossed. Let us kill our only son, dear and beloved, and prepare dried and spiced meat. By eating our son's flesh, we can cross the rest of the desert. Let not all three of us perish. Then, because the husband and wife would kill their only son, dear and beloved, prepare dried and roasted meat, and by eating their son's flesh, they would cross the rest of the desert. While they are eating their son's flesh, they would beat their breasts and cry, Where are you, our only son? Where are you, our only son? What do you think, bhikkhus? Would they eat that food for amusement or for enjoyment or for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness? No, venerable sir. Wouldn't they eat that food only for the sake of crossing the desert? Yes, venerable sir. It is in such a way, bhikkhus, that I say the nutriment edible food should be seen. When the nutriment edible food is fully understood, lust for the five cords of sensual pleasure is fully understood. When lust for the five cords of sensual pleasure is fully understood, there is no fetter bound by which a noble disciple might come back again to this world. So that is uh, attaining the uh, stage of non-anagami, uh, non-returner. And also that's it's sort of, it's, it's, would, what do you think, because would they eat that food for amusement or for enjoyment? Not for fun, not for pleasure, not for fattening, only for the beautiful... <laughs> You know, so that only for the maintenance of this, you know, that's the reflection that we give before, or recite before the meal every day. So, and how, because should the nutriment contact be seen? Suppose there is a flayed cow. If she stands exposed to a wall, the creatures dwelling in the wall would nibble at her. If she stands exposed to a tree, the creatures dwelling in the tree would nibble at her. If she stands exposed to water, the creatures dwelling in, in the water would nibble at her. If she stands exposed to the open air, the creatures dwelling in the open air would nibble at her. Whatever that flayed cow stands exposed to, the creatures dwelling there would nibble at her. It is in such a way, because that I say the nutriment contact should be seen. When the nutriment contact is fully understood, the three kinds of feeling are fully understood. When the three kinds of feeling are fully understood, I say, there is nothing further that a noble disciple needs to do. And that's realization of arahantship. And how, because should the nutriment of mental volition be seen? Suppose there is a charcoal pit deeper than a man's height, filled with glowing coals, without flame or smoke. A man would come along wanting to live, not wanting to die, desiring happiness and averse to suffering. Then two strong men would grab him by both arms and drag him towards the charcoal pit. The man's volition would be to get far away. His longing would be to get far away. His wish would be to get far away from the charcoal pit. For what reason? Because he knows, I will fall into this charcoal pit and on that account, I will meet death or deadly suffering. It is in such a way, because that I say the nutriment mental volition should be seen. When the nutriment mental volition is fully understood, the three kinds of craving are fully understood. 
when the three kinds of craving are fully understood, I say, there is nothing further that a noble disciple needs to do. And how bhikkhus should the nutriment consciousness be seen? Suppose there, they were to arrest a bandit, a criminal, and bring him before the king, saying, Sire, this man is a bandit, a criminal. Impose on him whatever punishment you wish. The king says to them, Go, men, in the morning strike this man with a hundred spears. In the morning they strike him with a hundred spears. Then at noon the king asks, Men, how's that man? Still alive, sire. Then go and at noon strike him with a hundred spears. At noon they strike him with a hundred spears. Then in the evening the king asks, Men, how's that man? Still alive, sire. Then go, in, then go and in the evening strike him with a hundred spears. In the evening they strike him with a hundred spears. What do you think, bhikkhus? Would that man being struck with three hundred spears experience pain and displeasure on that account? Venerable sir, even if he were struck with one spear, he would experience pain and displeasure on that account, not to speak of three hundred spears. It is in such a way, bhikkhus, that I say the nutriment consciousness should be seen. When the nutriment consciousness is fully understood, name and form is fully understood. When name and form is fully understood, I say, there is nothing further that a noble disciple needs to do. So as I said, these are probably the most vivid ways that the, the Buddha uh, describes. So as you see, this is, again, as, as that, that nutriment as a base for you know, what we seek, you know, gratification, seek uh, identification with, uh, and, uh, and the Buddha is saying what, you know, what we're seeking is, 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 is painful. And, and, uh, and if we could only understand that, and that's a way to, and so that, that, that contemplation of the nutriment as, as food, the, the edible food, you're just watching the way that the mind goes out to edible food, uh, is not dissimilar to any of the other ways that um, those cords of sensual pleasure, the uh, through the eye, ears, nose, tongue, and body, as the mind going out to that, it's not any different. So that by contemplating uh, our attachment to food, we can understand the nature of of these these uh, sense uh, that desire for sense pleasure and the same with the nutriment uh, contact contact being the pasa the, the the contact between sense consciousness and the i uh, sense consciousness the object and the uh, and the, uh, the 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 actual door its door of the sense itself uh, as that arises that is called contact uh, and we seek contact just to be still and content and peaceful uh, is really hard for us um, and if we really contemplate that we would understand the nature of feeling and, and of course then the of course the image that the Buddha gives of that flayed cow uh, there isn't a comfortable place that a flayed cow can be and so that uh, the, the the feelings of 
um, pain and discomfort and and disease. So, if, but in reality, you know that 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 seeking of even the seeking of contact that is pleasurable uh, or exciting or interesting or whatever uh, life affirming and all of that is still complicated and difficult and and in the end dukkha so that uh, if we understood when we fully understand the nutriment contact uh, you know, the three kinds of feelings are are fully understood and that, that sense of the you know, painful feeling, pleasurable feeling, neither painful nor pleasurable. It's just these are feelings. And the same with the, the say mental volition and manosanjeta is is the, is the word. So that, that yeah, that mental volition, the mind going out, the mind seeking some kind of object and affirmation. Yeah, but it's it's like um, you know, going into a uh, a charcoal pit. And um, if we understood manosanjeta, the nutriment, mental volition, we would understand the three different kinds of craving. So, gamatanha, bhavatanha, vibhavatanha, that's the, the things that the Buddha pointed to in the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta as the fundamental cravings and desires that, that end up in suffering. And then with the sense of consciousness that... Um, that whatever consciousness we seek um, is inevitably unsatisfactory and and uh, doesn't really provide us with a, a place of security or refuge and so that that sense that the uh, when we un, uh, and sort of yeah, being struck with three hundred you know, and when saying even if you were struck with one spear you'd experience pain and displeasure. Uh, but uh, you know that that's it's sort of day in day out, uh, moment to moment uh, dissatisfaction, discontent. That we we are constantly seeking that affirmation, and then when we understand consciousness clearly, then it's that sense of ne- the whole sort of body mind complex, the the external, the internal. Uh, the objective, the subjective, are 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 are, are understood. Anyway, it's this is one of my favorite suttas. <laughs> the next sutta on on uh, 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 nutriment uh, is a uh, follows on from that, and uh, um, uh, takes a slightly different tack, which is is uh, is very interesting, I think. Atsavati. Uh, it's called If There Is Lust. Uh, and that's Sutta number 64. Because there are these four kinds of nutriment for the maintenance of beings that have already come to be and for the assistance of those about to come to be. What for? The nutriment, edible food, gross or subtle. Second, contact. Third, mental volition. Fourth, consciousness. These are the four kinds of nutriment for the maintenance of beings that have already come to be and for the assistance of those seeking a new existence. If because there is lust for, nu- for the nutriment edible food, if there is delight, if there is craving, consciousness becomes established there and comes to growth. 
Wherever consciousness becomes established and comes to growth, there is a descent of name and form. When there is a descent of name and form, there is the growth of volitional formations. Where there is the growth of volitional formations, there is the production of future renewed existence. Where there is the production of future renewed existence, there is future birth, aging, and death. Where there is future birth, aging, and death, I say that is accompanied by sorrow, anguish, and despair. If bhikkhus, there is lust for the nutriment con contact, or for the nutriment mental volition, or for the nutriment consciousness. If there is delight, if there is craving, consciousness comes as, becomes established there and comes to growth. Wherever consciousness becomes established and comes to growth, I say that is accompanied by sorrow, anguish, and despair. And there's, it's elided there. Suppose because an artist or a painter using dye or lac or turmeric or indigo or crimson would create the figure of a man or a woman complete in all its features on a well-polished plank or wall or canvas. So too, if there is lust for the nutriment edible food or for the nutriment contact or for the nutriment mental volition or for the nutriment consciousness, if there is delight, if there is craving, consciousness becomes established there and comes to growth. Wherever consciousness becomes established and comes to growth, there is that, that whole production of, of re future renewed existence, um, future aging and death, accompanied by sorrow, anguish, and despair. If because there is no last for the nutriment edible food, or for the nutriment contact, or for the nutriment mental volition, or for the nutriment consciousness. If there is no delight, if there is no craving, consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, there is no descent of name and form. Where there is no descent of name and form, there is no growth of volitional formations. Where there is no growth of volitional formations, there is no production of future renewed existence. Where there is no production of future renewed existence, there is no future birth, aging, and death. Where there is no future birth, aging, and death, I say that is without sorrow, anguish, and despair. Suppose, bhikkhus, there was a house or a hall with a peaked roof with windows on the northern, southern, and eastern sides. When the sun rises and a beam of light enters through a window, where would it become established? On the western wall, venerable sir. If there were no western wall, where would it become established? On the earth, venerable sir. If there were no earth, where would it become established? On the water, venerable sir. If there was no water, where would it become established? It would not become established anywhere, venerable sir. So too, bhikkhus, if there is no lust for the nutriment, edible food, for the nutriment contact, for the nutriment mental volition, for the nutriment consciousness, con consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, I say that is without sorrow, anguish, and despair. So those are a couple. 
suttas that you can contemplate for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. <laughs> I, I love that image of the light and the earth and the water and stuff just because yeah. uh, it does not become established, but it doesn't mean there's not light. Exactly, exactly. That's the really profound aspect of it. So it's not, a, and, and that's exactly where that, the Buddha teaching by the middle way, it's not that the, the uh, um, it's like in yesterday's, it's like the, the, there's this profound dichotomy that we find ourselves in, of being caught by either being or non-being, and, uh, but there is a middle way in between. Okay. Continue, continuing on with Paul's uh, preface, translator's preface, and uh, in his preface it goes on to another next section called Teaching Dhamma. Ajahn Chah was always available to his disciples for guidance, but he did not conduct frequent interviews to determine their progress. He urged people to self-reliance through knowing their own minds and not getting attached to or doubt, doubtful about whatever occurred in meditation. He often told the Sangha that he was giving them a suitable environment in which to develop their own practice. He said, it's like providing a pasture for your cows. If there's a pasture that's fenced in and has plenty of grass, the cows can eat grass and also be safe. If they are cows, they will eat. But if they don't want to eat the grass, they aren't cows. Maybe they're pigs or dogs. His meditation instructions were usually simple. Concentration and insight are generally not dealt with as separate topics. Mindfulness and insight are threaded through most of the teachings and are spoken of on different levels of refinement. Also, other standard meditations such as recollection of death and generation of loving-kindness, were often not taught systematically or formally, but more as themes for contemplation and as attitudes to be kept constantly in mind. <clears throat> he would present these ideas in ways that pierced the heart. On his visit to the United States in 1979, he established the theme of facing the executioner. Quote, Imagine there was a fortune teller whose predictions were always right. You go to see him and he tells you, without question, you are going to die in seven days. Would you be able to sleep? You would let go of everything and meditate day and night. In truth, this is what we are all destined for, and we are facing the executioner every moment. Unquote. And he recommended as homework thinking about one's own death three times a day at the very least, understanding the teachings. The structure of this book follows Ajahn Chah's oft-repeated statement. First one learns Dhamma, but does not yet understand it. Then one understands, but has not yet practiced. One practices, but has not seen the truth of Dhamma. Then one sees Dhamma, but one's being has not yet become Dhamma. The point of this classification is that until reaching the level of being Dhamma, one still has suffering, and one's potential is not fully realized. Now that we are at a stage in the transmission of Buddhism to the West where many people have 
been sincerely studying and practicing the way of the Buddha for decades, this may be a concept that can be understood directly from experience. Ajahn Chah saw Dhamma practice as a way of life and not merely a set of exercises or rituals. And the goal, though he rarely spoke of goals or, or attainments, as nothing less than the cessation of suffering, a state of clarity and peace in which the mind is no longer swayed by internal and external happenings. It might be helpful to keep this in mind when reading the teachings, which are full of repetition of basic themes and may at times appear to be too basic and simplistic. Ajahn Chah always urged his listeners to neither believe nor disbelieve his words, but rather to investigate the teachings to see how they related to personal experience. Ajahn Chah was primarily a teacher of monks and nuns, people who have forsaken worldly ties and gone forth to a life of renunciation. While he was emphatic that Buddhist practice is not the exclusive exclusive province of monastics, he did emphasize the advantages offered by the discipline and simplicity of ordained life. Living in a monastery that is following the canonical discipline, one refrains from all harm. There is a community based on mutual helping, sharing, and respect. With minimal possessions, there is little to squabble over or covet. Dhamma is something to be lived, an idea an idea reflected in Thai words for spiritual practice. And living in this way for a number of years builds habits of attentiveness, restraint, and unselfishness. The result is often people who are strikingly happy. Sometimes Ajahn Chah may sound moralistic to Western ears in talking about things such as heedlessness or refraining from evil, for example. The Buddha explained evil as that which harms oneself and others, and he called heedlessness the way to death. Paying attention to the fine details of how one lives in all situations, alone or with others, can refine the mind considerably and create a firm foundation for meditation practice. Talk of good and evil may rankle us due to habit, perhaps the result of too many joyless Sunday school lessons, but it may be worthwhile to think about the implications. Ajahn Chah speaks repeatedly of the need for moral conduct, but it is for the purpose of creating a relaxed mind and a harmonious living environment, not in response to commandments handed down from on high, the violation of which is met with punishment. As with all of his teachings, his instructions on morality and virtue have a practical purpose and do not involve taking anything on blind faith. He also speaks of the necessity of transcending both good and evil. But as in all schools of Buddhism, there is the need for close attention to them, not only at first, but most of the way through the path. At other times, he may seem to be speaking to Thai people and their cultural habits, such as when talking about the traditions of taking precepts, listening to the teachings, making offerings, and having strange beliefs about what Buddhism is or what it can do for followers. With some reflection, however, similar patterns may be seen to exist in Western Judeo-Christian religious upbringings in general, and among Western Buddhists in particular. <clears throat> As in the original teachings of the Buddha, 
Repetition is common in Ajahn Chah's words. The need to drive a point home cannot be underestimated, especially with the precious Dhamma that contradicts habitual thinking so deeply rooted in worldly beings. Again, we can ask ourselves how thoroughly we have understood and assimilated into our being these seemingly simple ideas. Ajahn Chah was something of a reformer in Thai Buddhism. Like the Buddha, he taught in the vernacular and cut through stultified traditions of his time. He was just as likely to use analogies to dogs, mangoes, chickens, rice fields, and buffaloes as he was to employ the, the classic Buddhist terminology he had studied before taking up the way of an ascetic meditation monk. In keeping with his view that Dhamma teaching is a matter of skillful means to make people see, he often said that one who teaches needs to know what is appropriate for those who are listening. He also rejected the sectarianism that sometimes poisons relations between the two main monastic groups in Thailand. Organization of the Teachings Although this book has been divided into chapters with certain themes, the teachings themselves do not fit into such neat pigeonholes, and there is an overlapping of topics. Ajahn Chah generally did not limit his Dhamma talks to one specific subject at a time, unless he was giving meditation instructions or perhaps explaining the monastic rules to the community. Some common elements are as follows. The teachings return again and again to the themes of cause and effect, impermanence, non-attachment, moral living, <coughs> avoiding extremes, and not taking things too seriously. Occasionally, Ajahn Chah offered glimpses of the other shore, of the experience of one who has gone beyond the mundane, but for the most part he dealt with the problems we face and the ways the Buddha taught for dealing with and putting an end to them. He compared speaking extensively about nirvana, <clears throat> the deathless state of bliss, to explaining colors to a blind person, and noted that people in the Buddha's time complained that the world-honored one must be ignorant of nibbana, since he did not explain clearly what it was. Ajahn Chah often quotes the Pali term, pachatang, which means the results of practice are to be experienced for oneself and cannot be given by another or understood through mere explanation. Occasionally, Ajahn Chah spoke of the unconditioned, of original mind, of that which is beyond birth and death, and he seemed to get a great kick out of doing so. Hearing the Heart Sutta in, in rough translation from English to Thai, he remarked that it talks of he remarked that it talks of deep wisdom beyond conventions, but this does not mean we can discard conventions. Without conventions, how could we teach, communicate, or explain anything? In the end, his concern was to train, not to entertain, to help purify people's obscurations so they could see directly just as one tries to cure a blind person's malady rather than merely talking to him about colors. As the Buddha said, <clears throat> I teach only two things, namely suffering and the end of suffering. Right view is mentioned repeatedly. Ajahn Chah called it the foundation of the path, along with sila, moral conduct, and it is indeed the first factor 
in the Buddha's Eightfold Path. It is meant in both an intellectual and experiential sense, the latter being what is called wisdom. Briefly, Ajahn Chah speaks of right view as understanding cause and effect, not holding things to be stable, sure, or permanent, seeing the unsatisfactory nature of conditioned existence, that is, everything that an ordinary, uninstructed person takes to be life, and not believing in the existence of a self. On the side of experience, it is a mode of being in which one does not react to internal and external phenomena with elation or depression, seeing them for what they actually are, and thus not suffering. Not suffering is not a blank state, but one of peace, radiance, and joy, which is what most people who met him saw very strikingly in Ajahn Chah. This should be kept in mind when reading his description of wisdom and the state of peace as being beyond happiness or suffering. Obviously, there is great happiness in liberation, but there is nothing in our ordinary experiences of happiness that remotely compares to it, nothing that can be conceived by the confused mind or found through the usual paths of seeking the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant. Although right view is the first path factor, it will pervade all the other aspects of the path if one is practicing correctly. It will be present and continuously amplified through the stages of understanding, practicing, seeing, and finally being Dhamma. Another way to speak of right view is in terms of the two extremes, another common theme in the teachings. When the Buddha gave his first sermon, the discourse on the turning the wheel of Dhamma, he set out the middle way that avoids mistaken paths of spiritual practice, which he summarized as seeking gratification through sense pleasures and self-mortification. Ajahn Chah gives the two extremes a broader interpretation, describing them as the habits of reacting to whatever one, en one encounters with elation and depression, joy and sorrow. One needn't wear a hair shirt and whip oneself to fall into the extreme of self-torment. Rather, it can be understood as bringing needless pain upon oneself through various habitual reactions, such as guilt or suppression. Nor does one have to be a jaded pleasure seeker to suffer from the extreme of indulgence. Again, these are hard facts that can be seen in our own experience. The seeing leads to weariness with worldly ways. Weariness is not exhaustion or a sense of apathy or aversion, but a turning away from that which is recognized to be fruitless and meaninglessly painful. It also brings about detachment. One is then ready to seek refuge in something reliable and meaningful, to live with restraint and mindfulness, and to free the mind to find its natural condition of peace and happiness. Understanding cause and effect and the correct and incorrect approaches to practice leads to another common theme, sila bhattabharamasa, usually translated as attachment to rites and rituals. It is one of the three fetters of mind removed by attainment of stream entry, the first level of enlightenment, the other two fetters being skeptical doubt and mistaken belief in the existence of a self. It is another idea that bears explanation.
Although Theravada Buddhism is known for its unelaborate modes of practice, there is still a fair amount of ritual involved in its traditional forms. It could also be argued that even keeping precepts or sitting down to meditate are rituals of a sort. <coughs> Ajahn Chah's interpretation of Sila Bhattabharamasa has been translated here as superstitious attachment to rites and rituals, in other words, to any spiritual conventions. It is a belief that certain actions or modes of behavior by themselves will produce benefits, ranging from good health and riches to meditative states and enlightenment, without understanding or any change of habits being necessary. These actions can be the making of offerings, taking part in ceremonies, such as going for refuge or requesting precepts, or observing the outward disciplines of keeping rules and practicing formal meditation. Ajahn Chah often spoke of his own tribulations and mistaken attitudes in his earlier years. He told of one of his teachers, <clears throat> Ajahn Kinnerly, just sitting and sewing his robes, just sitting and sewing his robes, he was meditating much better than I was when I tried to sit and practice samadhi for long periods. If I sat all night, it only meant that I suffered all night. I would watch him do walking meditation. Sometimes he would just take a few steps and get tired, so he would go and lie down. But he was receiving more benefit than I did when I walked for hours. Ajahn Chah also made constant references to doubt, as it is naturally present when one, one's views <clears throat> are not clear and when practice is falling away from the path. It can manifest in many ways, some of them quite subtle. Doubts about the teachings, about one's own ability, about the teacher and spiritual companions, about the way of practice. Ajahn Chah repeatedly points out how doubt hampers one's commitment to spiritual practice and keeps one in a constant search for intellectual answers and says that the antidote is looking directly at experience, including the experience of doubt itself. I'll leave it there and leave, put it, open it up for questions. From the suttas no. that you read... Uh, one is, I was wondering what the difference between Mano Sanchetana that you mentioned from the Sutta and Sankara from Paticca Samupada is. Um, well, I mean, I think, um, I mean, it's a good, a, a good question. And on a certain level, I don't know, really, uh, in terms of the... Uh, <coughs> The uh, how do you say the the appropriate scholastic response to that, but in terms of 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 how it functions, I would say it's 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 very similar. Um, it's it's that formulating of a of an intention within the mind, and uh, you know whether it's through what is called you know sankara in, in its various forms. <clears throat> and and the uh, manusanjatan I think is maybe a bit more specific, uh, just in terms of terminology. But in reality, it's probably it's that impulse going towards a, an object. Um, I had a few other questions. Could I ask? Yeah. And um, I didn't quite understand the simile used for the consciousness with the arrow. Is it the 
is the consciousness referring to the eye, ear, those consciousness, and how? Yeah, yeah. I didn't it understand. Would, what I would say it would be the, the. I would say it would be the. Yeah, just that sense of that seeking uh, as a nutriment, uh, seeking, seeking eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue, other seeking that, that stimulation of the senses. Uh, but then also the the that sense of consciousness of uh, which would then be uh, extra, if one extrapolates it, it if one were thinking of me being the conscious knower uh, and that con that sense of formulating a an identity I would say that's 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 where 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 it ends up mm -hmm. I just well, you were talking about the, the question of uh, uh, Sankara versus Sankara and Chaitanya. Right. Um, I remember that it was a simile um, that uh, Ajahn Suchito uh, offered that was like you could see Sankara as the, the train running down the track and Chaitanya is the push that keeps it moving. Oh, okay. Was a descriptive thing that helped me distinguish them. Question. So, it uh, for the of the four nutriments, for the first two, it seems like there is something we can do, like uh, restraint, sense res restraint on food, sense restraint, or not sending the mind out. Mm -hmm. Is there anything for the other? The, the well, I think just sort of see the, understanding the nature of. <clears throat> Of our tendency to identify, so it's that that, that fundamental root of, of, of uh, uh, it gives a handle on how to how to work with avijja. Uh, that's what I see, uh, and 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 so then then because oftentimes, as I said before, uh, when I started, like avijja tends to be a bit a bit nebulous. Um, but then this fleshes it out a lot more clearly. And where, to, how does it, how does it keep landing? What do we keep buying into? What do we keep assuming? I think for for me, those teachings on the contact, the uh, manosanchetana, the volitional volition, contact, volition, and consciousness, like those teachings, for me, they give. It's like the Buddha is giving encouragement or inspiration to gain full realization into them, mm -hmm. saying, when you gain full realization into them, it's like a flayed cow being freed from all those insects. It's mm -hmm. like the, uh, what was the uh, volition? Uh, it's like the man being freed from being pulled to the charcoal pit. It's mm -hmm. like the man not being pierced by 300 spears mm -hmm. to give encouragement and impetus to mm -hmm. realize those things. Yeah. Because consciousness, it's like it's just, just like <laughs> coming at us all the time. Coming at us all the time, yeah. So when mental, certain mental states arise, you know, like that one can see, you know, with the mind's eye or whatever, uh, is it helpful to say, this is perception, this is mental formation or volition, to create some distance uh, from them? It's helpful as a as an exercise, I would say. Uh, I wouldn't get too tangled up into trying to get because there's <clears throat> uh, there's others 
suttas where 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 there's where there is a, a, an attempt to parse things out really clearly, and the Buddha is 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 uh, these are conjoined; they are not disjoined, and so it's important. I mean, it's a helpful exercise if it helps. Um, and um, but also sometimes we you know we're, we're, we we want to get it labeled really clearly and and that is feeding the the uh, the kind of fundamental doubt uh, uh, that's creating the problem in the first place. But it's a you know it is a helpful exercise to to gain some kind of of uh, sharpness of 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 reflection right because what what happened what happens sometimes is that the the moment for example i say this is perception there's some like some detachment if you will from yeah yeah some some not yeah. some not, not self yeah. perception yeah yeah these are natural processes that, that uh, can be observed like is that so like well it's just my perception just questioning it, saying, uh-huh. oh, is that, that frees us in a certain respect. Okay, got enough to contemplate for a while. <laughs>